Welcome to Split Happens, the Divorce Down Under podcast where we talk about anything and everything family law related. Okay, so welcome very much to another episode of Split Happens, a Divorce Down Under podcast with me, Alex, and my colleague, Liza. Today we're going to be talking about property settlements in family law. Now, this is a topic that we get asked a lot about in the wake of a separation. So this is really about what happens to the money and the finances of a couple when they're getting divorced or their relationships come to an end. So without any more ado, I'm going to pass it over to Liza to try and give us a quick rundown on that, and I'll jump in with any questions as, I, as we go. So Liza, tell me about property settlement in family law. Okay, so the very first thing that you really need to be aware of is that property settlements, that's what lawyers call it. For most of you listening out there, you probably think that's just the divorce. So we say, we hear people ring in saying, oh, I've got to, I'm going through a divorce. I need you to help me do this. I need you to help me get through it. And a lot of the time what is needing to happen is there to be a property adjustment between you. So over the years you've been together and you've accumulated some property and it might be in your name, it might be in joint names, it might be in names with other people, there might be some third parties involved. So all of that property, whether it be a house, your superannuation, cash, all that sort of stuff, that all gets thrown in. But what we're talking about from the very outset is whether or not that um, there should be, in fact, a, an adjustment to those interests of that property. So take, for example, you've got, the, you've got your house and it might be in your husband's name and you might be the wife. And your, um, the very first thing is whether or not um, there, in fact, should be an adjustment or an alteration to those interests. So it doesn't necessarily follow that just because one of you has got property or, or that there should be an automatic adjustment. If you separate from somebody, it doesn't automatically flow that there should That's be right. a settlement upon you. You, you can't right. claim 50-50. I mean, it's... No, there's no automatic figure. There's no scale or anything like that. So the number could be zero. It could be zero. You could be, um, you could have absolutely nothing as a result of it because you might have, you might have a house. He might have a house. You might have your own super each, and then the court says, "Well, I don't think we need to make any adjustment, and therefore we don't need to have this property settlement. There is no need for an adjustment." So the stage one is really quite a big stage, but highly technical in that should there ever be a property settlement at all. That's correct. And I suppose that's worked out by looking at how people have arranged their finances and other things like how long they've been together. Would that be right? That's right. So it, it all depends on um, the, the length of the relationship is a big factor. Because yeah. So the longer a relationship... The more likely that there's going to be, there's going to be a need to adjust the interests. Right, okay. And conversely then, shorter relationships might sometimes see smaller settlements or even no settlements with very Some, short relationships. Sometimes there can be no settlements, and but sometimes it's more of a mathematical exercise too. It's more of a, you know, you, you take back what you put in. Right. Oh, like um, 
being dreary and law schooly, like a restitutional approach. So yeah. you, you restore people to the property that they would That's have right. had. So had it not say, been for example, you, both of you didn't really have much um, to begin with and you've both put money into a deposit for a house, but you've still got this mortgage. Um, it might be that you've, you just both take back roughly what you put into it. But there'd need to be some dealing with some finalisation of that financial relationship where you, for example, it might be a very short relationship and it might be possible to put people back to where they were, but you've still got to sever the ties if you've got a joint mortgage or something like that. You do, Um, but if that property were to be sold, the point is, I guess, that in every situation you're going to have um, a different, there'll be a different need arising Mm. um, as to whether or not you actually need to have that formal arrangement in place. Now, if you've got a very short relationship and you've got a house that was that you're proposing to sell and for it to be sold, um, we always recommend that you formalise some sort of agreement so that you are f- what we call financially separated from this other person. Yeah. But that's not necessarily do- that doesn't necessarily mean that the court needs to get involved in this process and actually make a property adjustment order. Okay, well, we'll come back, uh, we'll get come on later on moment. about, yeah, we'll get to how you can formalise things, what documents we're talking about. But going through the, the process then, so the first thing that you would do if you go and see a family lawyer, the first thing that they should be considering is almost a holistic question. Is there a need for a property settlement? Is That's there right. a need for an adjustment? And let's assume that you know, we think that there is, or the court says, yeah, we think that there is. What's the next step then? What What's the stage that happens second? And that? So the, f- the, the next step is that, they basically need to take an inventory of all your all of your assets. Now, I mean um, things like your house, your super, money in your bank account, um, and also all of your liabilities, such as your mortgage, um, credit cards, personal loans, hex debts, tax debts. So these are, p- these are personal debts, and they go in as well, do they? Personal debts, that's right. So everything goes in the pool. Um, if, you've, if you've got it at the time... Sorry, you've just used an expression, the pool. Uh, In family law terms, we mean that to mean the property pool, don't we? Which is Yeah, we're not going down to... Where everything sits. We're not going down to Pizzy Park. (laughs) Um, No, it's... If you're not listing on the Gold Coast, that's down at Burley. Yeah. (laughs) So in terms of um, what we're... We we create this pool. We create this inventory of all the assets, liabilities, and also resources. So if you're a beneficiary to a trust, all that information needs to be... Um, put before right. so your lawyer to work out what is your true financial position of both yourself, your other half, and jointly. So it's a, it really is like putting together a balance sheet for a set That's of right. accounts. So we've got all of these things that we own, we've got all of these things that we owe, and this is our net position. And you, right. you mentioned as well, I think, superannuation, which yeah. that can sometimes be a bit of a surprise to some people that they're super which they sometimes perceive to be really personal and just belonging to them, but it's not. It's it gets thrown into the pool. It's in that pool, isn't it? You know, down in Pizzy Park with everybody else down there. Right. So we've got our property pool then. So we've we worked out that there's going to be an adjustment order and we've worked out there's a property pool. But what, what do we do with something in that pool like um, a piece of real estate, a piece of artwork or something that you say it's worth a million, I say it's worth nothing or, well, or a dollar? Well, if you can't um, agree on that... Um, on the value of it, you'll need to get an independent valuation. So that'll either come through... So would I get that on my own? I'd just go off and get my own value and, and well, come up with a number? many do. <laughs> we don't usually recommend it. It's usually better to have um, both parties agree 
to a precise a particular valuer to value all the things that need to be valued. So whether it be cars, um, as you said, valuable artworks, furniture items. You know, we've had plenty of cases where people you know argue over the Tupperware and the mm-hmm. and you know a piano and the dog. So we'll get back to the dog because that is usually a highly emotive issue. It um, is emotive. About who gets to keep the dog. Um, obviously, it depends on what kind of dog it is, but um, we'll get back to the... Well, I won't talk about dogs just yet, but going back to property generally, working out values for things can be really difficult. It can, and it can usually end up... Um, people get stuck in that stage of going through this whole property settlement exercise in that they can't seem to move, they, f- they struggle to move past agreeing on a value because, of course, there's a strategy involved, which mm. when it all, when, when you see at the end of it, of going through this process, you can see why the value is, in fact, really, really important. Um, so, for example, if you're wanting to keep an asset, you're going to want to have that value as low as possible. Yeah. But if you're wanting the other party to, or if you're happy for the other party to keep that asset, well, you want that asset to be noted as being very, very valuable. So, therefore, you've got to disempower people, haven't you? You've got to have a, th- a neutral third-party professional valuer. I'm not talking about, you know, for valuing like uh, you know, the contents of the cupboards and the, and the cutlery drawer, but rather the big-ticket items. That's right. Pieces of real estate expensive works of art and one area that we get bogged down in a lot in our family law practice is business valuations. I was just going to say that's one business thing Business owners and yet. operators, their businesses might be worth very little on a balance sheet on a day-to-day basis or in a, from a taxable perspective and, and they might even yield very little in terms of a taxable income because that's the income after tax. But really the value is in the income that that can actually generate and the things that it can pay for. And its true value might be very different to that person. So how do we value a business? Well, we usually get expert valuers, people, forensic accountants and those who are qualified to value those businesses because... That sounds expensive. It, it is expensive. So you Every time you hear forensic valuer, even me knowing what lawyers' rates are, I go, crikey. Yeah, so it is expensive, but usually when it's a joint valuation, parties will share that cost equally. Right. So um, I'm going to play devil's advocate there then, though, because sometimes, in the wake of a separation, one party and en- one person, sorry, one party ends up with most of the money or the control of the money, and they might be, for example, the business owner and say, "Well, I'm I'm not sharing equal cost for this. If you want this valued, you pay for it." Mm. So that might sometimes then mean if you can't even agree the property pool like that. You're going to have to get some kind of a court order or compel them to pay for it, aren't you? That's right. You, it, um, when you're in that situation, if you're if you're not able to go down the mediation pr- uh, path for whatever reason, sometimes you've already been through that path and they're still not complying. Although a lot of the time you won't have gone through a mediation if you can't even identify the pool. Yeah, it's yeah. a really important step. You may need to get the court's assistance, so that would mean filing an application um, with the FCFCFC, our friends at the Federal Circuit and Family Court of Australia, available in a central capital near you. So you can file um, what's called an initiating application, but you'll also need to um, seek interim orders for um, valuations in in respect of the property that's in dispute. 
and you'll have to file it. There's a, there's a range of other documents that will need, you'd need to file, which we'll come to in a moment. But, but, just but critically, is having a court make the order to appoint, you know, that's right. Joe Bloggs or Jane Smith as being the expert valuer of that and business or property. And also, the, yeah. the court does have the power to um, make orders in respect of who's to pay for that report. Yeah. So in the situation where, um, say, for example, I think you said before that you know, one party has the money, the other party wants valuation but can't afford it and they're saying well if you want it you pay for it well the court can in fact make an order that the party who has the money pay for that valuation at first instance and then right. the, the share be taken off it later can be on. taken account of later on whoever pays for it yeah okay got you all right so there's your property pool that's that's the second stage that we've talked about we, we know that there's going to be a property adjustment of some sort we've now been able to work out what bits of pieces of property, whether it's real estate, whatever it might be, money in banks, so the stuff that we own and the stuff that we owe. We know what that is. What happens next? What's the next thing we need to think about? Then we talk about the contributions that have been made by those parties over the years. Now, we break that up into initial contributions, so the ones, the contributions that were made at the start of the relationship or the marriage. Now, if you are married... We usually take it from the start of the relationship or what lawyers like to say is cohabitation. I was going to ask you about that because the start of a relationship and the start of a marriage in, in you know in our modern world are often very different, well, actually in, in ancient worlds as well, often mean very different things. So it is cohabitation then, that's the key thing. It is It is the key thing, but watch this space because I'm, I wouldn't be surprised in years to come um, with the new wording of whether it be called cohabitation or what it's going to be called in terms of because of that lack of requirement of having to live together under the one roof. That's going and to be scaring a few people, I should think, when they listen to that. that traditionally, it's you know cohabita- cohabitation occurs when you're living together as a couple under one roof. and but Sometimes relationships at family law might not even need that. Well, we've got... There are many relationships where they don't live together under the one roof. So cohabitation is a concept that I think is going to have to have a little bit of flexibility here, but I digress. We'll, um, maybe we need to create some kind of little pseudo contract that you take out every time you go out on a date with your boyfriend or girlfriend well, they could just and add say, it to this is not a relationship for the purposes of the family. Yeah, just tick a box, Tinder profile. <laughs> okay. swipe, you know, before you swipe right, make sure you tick the box. I acknowledge this that this is not a de facto relationship. Yeah, that's under right. the <laughs> okay. Something like that. All right. So um, anyway, we, we digressing to, to cohabitation. That's yeah, a really so interesting point. But so, so we're looking at initial contributions yeah. from the start of the relationship. Yeah, I usually I like to use the word relationship of when the relationship gets real. When you're mm. you know you start intermingling finances and things like that. That's when it becomes really, um, I, I think, is the main sort of identifying fe- features of when that relationship starts. And so um, you talk about the initial contributions that are made at that point. And at that point in time, you're really only talking about financial contributions. So what sorts of things would be an initial contribution? You know, um, wife has a unit um, in her name. She brings that and it's unencumbered. Right, okay. She might, um, and it might have equity of about $500,000 in it. It's obviously a unit that she's bought and it's like obviously a really bad location because you're not going to have an unencumbered unit for 500000 these days. <laughs> but... The fight, the um, and the and the other party might have. We're talking pre-crash, of course, aren't we? Yeah. Before the property market crashes in twenty twenty-three, and this is an, pretty, an historic podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So, in terms of um, 
you know, you might have one party has $500,000 in equity sitting in a unit and the other party might just have a car and the shirt on his back. That is some scenario that we have all seen. A person starts a relationship and one of them has, you know, they've, they've been the prudent person and they have saved and they've, they've scrimped yep. and they've saved and they've, they've been careful with their money and they've got, you know, either a place of their own or they're buying a place of their own and they've got their car and a bit of super saved up and furniture and nice things. And then they are smitten by somebody who is a spendthrift, ne'er-do-well, fabulously exciting, windswept and interesting, but with ne'er been to them. And so you have those contrasting initial contributions. Is that going to decide everything then, the initial no. contributions, or do we need to go beyond that? No, we, we, go, we, we keep going beyond that. Um, initial contributions are really important in a shorter relationship because, of course, you don't have that passage of time to have eroded the weight of that contribution. So when you've got an initial contribution, say, for example, those parties go on to live together and be married and for, uh, have a relationship of 20 years, then you might have the situation where um, the party who brought that initial contribution of $500,000, it might not mean that much because together they've been able to pull their assets um, or they've grown their assets, they've both worked really hard, they've invested, they've made smart decisions um, – they didn't have their avocado on toast every morning and they've got <laughs> a portfolio of about $4.5 million after 20 years. They invested in an avocado farm. They, they invested <laughs> in the avocados. They didn't put it on their toast. That's right. So you've got um, these people who over the years, and they've both jointly, assuming that they've jointly contributed, that $500,000 initial contribution, while it may have had a springboard effect of trying to elevate them and getting some more funding and stuff um, along the way, it's still not going to have as much of an impact if it were compared to someone who was in a short relationship because that length of time of all those contributions that have been made by both of the parties yeah. is going to basically dilute the importance of that first contribution. Yeah, I, I wrote down the expression when you, when you used it a little while ago, eroded the weight of initial contributions. So that, that makes perfect sense that if you are together for a very long period with somebody, then whilst they may have started out with quite a bit more than you, the longer that you're together, the greater the financial intermingling, the greater the extent of your sort of shared financial futures, aspirations, dreams, and things that you do, anticipating a long and permanent financial future, that, that sort of really starts to have that drip, drip, drip effect on that increase at the start because it's all about it this, that shared financial future for a long period of time. And the other thing, um, it's not just all about the financial side of things. There are there's direct financial contributions, but there's okay. also indirect financial contributions. Now, I had a case not that long ago, and the husband in that case was just adamant that the wife made no financial contribution at all to the property pool that he had. That He said that it was all in his name. They'd been together for over 10 years. So it was a substantial period of time. And he just had, he, he would refuse to give her any credit for any financial contribution. But what became apparent to him was that she would work and she made, and she made uh, a small and modest income and she would use that money and she would buy groceries and she would pay some bills from time to time. He made all the mortgage payments. He did bigger improvements. He made the lion's share of the financial contributions. But to say that there was no financial contribution at all was completely incorrect 
because he was saying that there was no financial contribution to a particular property that was in his sole name. So, but indirectly, what she had done, she was using and performing services such as bookkeeping and she was doing a whole range of other little jobs around the house. She was looking after children. We'll we'll get to that in a moment. That's a non-financial. But she was performing these and she was bringing in money, which was then freeing up his time and freeing up his finances so that he could divert that money into the mortgage for the property. They're all things, I suppose, (laughs) that if you have to pay somebody to do all of those things, then that would be a big outlay. So she's saving that relationship, that expenditure. So that's her indirect financial contribution. And so and that's and that's the way that the court saw it too. Um, He eventually conceded after a a lot of um, head banging at a mediation table. No, it was in it was during a cross examination. So even better. Yeah. So um, and a a number of probably inappropriate commentary from myself, but. (laughs) I find that hard to believe. Can't help myself sometimes when you're dealing with people like that. But eventually he got the picture and he finally understood that, yes, that is an indirect contribution and that is really, you know, so just because it may not be as great as the other person, it's still taken into account. And the longer that you're doing those things for, the more significant it becomes. It becomes pivotal, doesn't it? It becomes almost the fulcrum upon which that other person is able then to go off and earn this extra higher income because they couldn't do it were it not for those efforts of the other person. And that's a nice segue into dealing with the non-financial contributions such as what we what we call homemaking contributions. So in those sorts of situations, you've got the, um, and, and I'm going to stereotype here, but it's often the wife who is also the primary carer. She may give up a bit of time um, from her career and not be bringing anything in financially for a period of time and she might have um, – and because she'll be raising the kids, she'll be picking them up from school, taking them off to football training. And it could be – well, quite right there too, as, as often as you possible. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Um, but the, the parenting aspects as well, it, that's something which a lot of couples sort of reach an almost unspoken agreement about. I mean, sometimes they'll talk about it Was they in the in the first flush of their romance that say, oh, it'll be wonderful, we'll have little Johnny, little Janie, we'll do all of this, this is what we'll do, roses in the garden and all of the little white picket fence, and you'll stay at home whilst I go out and earn. And it could be either way around these days, of course, it doesn't make any difference. But you're right, historically, and, and still generally, we find that it has been, and we might be a generation out, but... It has been the father that's gone out mm. and earned the higher income whilst the mum has stayed at home. And it's been because of their own agreement. So there has to be value placed upon the work that's done in parenting. And my goodness me, I mean, I can remember when my boys were very small and they were, great, I'm off to court today. Phew, you know, <laughs> I won't be changing a nappy for about oh, 12 hours. So <laughs> it's really, really hard work looking after small people. It is. I've, I and, couldn't and wait to get people. back to work. I really couldn't. You know, people say, "Oh, how do you do a day in court? How do you how do you deal with that?" I'm like, "Oh my goodness, have you met my children?" <laughs> but so. it's funny you should say that because when I um, when I was at the bar and uh, which is by by bar, Liza does actually mean every pub in Queensland, <laughs> as as well as her previous career as a barrister, I should say, and they refer yeah. to themselves as, as well. At I'm the bar. still at the bar. That I'm still at the public saloon. That's Definitely. what my grandfather used to always say. That he used to say, I, "I'd talk about being at the bar," and he'd say, "Is it the public?" Public or saloon? <laughs> so anyway. Well, women even allowed in there in back in the day. I'm not sure. 
Oh, I'm going to get thrown off this podcast in a minute. That's right. My, my shins are hurting with Eliza kicking me under the table now. That's all right. I'm sorry. I've well, going back to shoes. <laughs> so parenting then, that is you know, looking after the kids and being responsible for all those difficult things, managing a home. Those are all really, really valuable contributions, but they don't have a dollar figure, do they? No, they don't. And um, it's it's unfortunate, but a lot of people don't really place much of a value on the parenting contributions. And so what we need to make sure is that those um, contributions are recognised and and it's also not just the mother or, or the father in, in many cases who is taking the time out. Um, what that The reason why it's really important is that it, it allows the other party to go to work and to earn that income. So even if you don't have children, you might just have someone who looks after the house, who keeps all the house tidy. Uh, and the dog. And the dog. Who's going to tie the little ribbons in Tricky Woo's hair if you're out at work all day? Tricky, is that what your dog's called? No, that was Mrs oh, Pumphrey from oh. yeah, the James Harriet stories. Oh, okay, fine. No. <laughs> my, my dog is not called Tricky Woo. Oh, I was going to say that would just <laughs> put a whole new explanation on things. Um, <laughs> but in terms of in terms of the homemaking contributions... <laughs> You've, you've really got to think about, um, it's not just about the kids, it's about all the other things that we need to do um, that, are, that are done, that, that the husband or the wife, whoever the worker is, that doesn't have to do. You know, they don't have to iron the shirts or make the, the food or go do the grocery shopping or, or pay the bills. It's little things like that. So someone who's done that for an extended period of time, that's still considered a, a substantial contribution. Yeah, and I mean, it's a lot of work that goes into that. So, right, we've got our contributions then that yeah. could be monetary, indirect monetary, or completely non-monetary, but they're all contributions, and in their own sphere, they're all very valuable. So what's the next step? That's the first three things. The first three things are, should there be a property settlement at all? And if, there, if the answer to that is yes, what property are we talking about? Then the third thing is, okay, who's done what, who's earned what in the relationship, so there are contributions. So what's the fourth thing that we've got to look at? Well, we've got to look at the future needs of both of the parties. So, and What does that mean? Well, it, for the lawyers out there, they're the 75-2 factors. Um, but for the non-lawyers out there, that's that's talking about things like the age and health of the parties and also what they're, what they're needing in terms of um, income. It's largely directed at financial needs because you're looking at, you know, you've got these parties that have been, say, for example, you've got a 55-year-old woman living with her, previously previously living with her 57-year-old husband, um, and they decide to split, and he's still got a business, and she's been relying on his income for the last, you know, few years or 20 yeah. years of the relationship. She's um, now in a new world where she's, she's now, not going to have that income she's stream. She's not going to have that income stream. She's unlikely to probably be able to go and get herself a job, particularly if she's been out of the workforce. Um, she may have retired early, thinking that that they were about to retire together. Um, That's that sort of that commonality of purpose whilst you're yeah. together that we were talking about a little yep. while ago, about shared financial future, but suddenly that's pulled away then from it's you. it's all gone. Um, and you know, she may have some health issues. She may have these financial needs that um, the court needs to actually take into account. Now, we went to a CPD seminar thing, which is a educational seminar recently, and there was this 
a lot of discussion about calling it a further adjustment to to what um, what the both parties would be entitled to after you consider the contributions of both parties. But I still like to think of it as a further adjustment um, because you are thinking about is it something that you're needing to um, consider or is it something that you just need to bypass? Is it even relevant for this these particular parties? You know, you might have a young couple separating, no kids, um, both have good jobs. Is there really a need to consider any future needs? So they may not kind be. of you know equal each other out if you're both relatively young and you have similar yeah. kind of incomes. There's no health issues. There's no dependence. So it might not really be a very relevant consideration, but it could be enormously relevant to, as you've said, an older couple, but maybe an older couple that have still got financial dependence of the relationship. And, you know. and the thing is, too, is that a lot of the time when you when you we're dealing about future needs, you might have someone who's just as you know um, damaged as the other party in in, in terms mm. of needs. They might they might both be you know sitting on their deathbeds and <laughs> those health you know, issues can cancel each other out. But who's going to go first? Pretty much. <laughs> Hang so in as long as you can. You'll get a bigger share. So. So realistically, um, you know, it, it is a consideration that you, you take into account and that's where a lot of the time we sort of we try and um, address things like what's called spousal maintenance. So that's where there's that income disparity between the parties and so that's where you'll need to try and work out what someone's going to need financially in terms of income. All right. mainly we'll income we'll focus. probably we'll cover off spousal maintenance. It's a whole other topic. It but is. For, for our purposes today then. So we've got to figure out our fourth thing then is the future needs of the people and where they are at in life. There, you know, that, that awful word that's used, antecedents, what's going on with them, where, how yeah. old they are, how healthy yep. are they. So that takes us to the last and probably the trickiest, fairly short topic to discuss, which is the just and equity. So... How, how does that all work? What does that mean? So that basically is, although it's a, I'll cop a lot of criticism for saying it because there's one lot of people who will say there's no there's no such thing as fair when it comes to family law, and they're right. But for most people out there, is is this really what just and equitable was talking about? Is is are these orders fair? And that's when the judge's back, decision, isn't it? It is the judge's decision. So. We can sort of say why we think it's fair and why we think that um, it, it's, it results in those, the effect of those orders or the, the effect of that property adjustment is a fair result for both parties or for one party. Or, But it's really up to the judge to decide whether or not they think that having a regard to all those things, you know, what's in the pool, you know, you, you, these are where, this is where you might bring in things like there might be a sentimental value um, attached to, like it might be a family farm that is being... Um, well, farm cases, they're a whole other world. We'll do that as we'll a do separate... A pe- <laughs> an epi- a <laughs> That's an episode, an episode all on its own yeah. about farm cases and family properties. But, but in terms of, um, you know, you might have something that's very sentimental. And so it might be that the judge is saying, well, is it really fair that um, that the wife has to you know, lose her family farm. Um, and Is there a way of compensating? Is there another way around Yeah, that's it? right, I see. And so that's where they, they look at the... It's it's usually of the orders that have been sought. Right. So that it's competing approach then again, so isn't it? So to put it in like a layman's um, speak, it's that's what basically what the judge is doing at that stage. 
because um, they're trying to come up with a with a solution that is going to work. Um, there are plenty of judges out there who will just go, you know what, this is what it's going to be. I'm not, ca- I don't care that you're going to lose this. I don't care that this house has to be sold. It's going to be sold to divide it up. But when there are other considerations, and a lot of it is to do with that sentimental attachment, sometimes that's when it will come in, come into play at that stage. And and certainly, you know, I mean, most cases, I mean, we talk about the courts all of the time because that's the acid test. What does the legislation say? What do the rules of the court say? What are the reported decisions? But most cases don't actually end up being resolved by a final hearing by a judge. No. So it's about your experience and your you know, your colleague on the other side's experience and if there's a mediator, their experience, and putting together those sort of legal heads from having spent plenty of time in courts and crawled over these cases and decisions to say, look, those outcomes are inside the range that would be considered to be fair or they're outside. And yeah. it's getting them to be within that range of saying to your client sometimes, look, you might not like it, but that's probably the outcome that's going to be, or it's close to the outcome. Yeah, that's and right. do you want to roll the dice and lose another 18 months and goodness knows how many tens of thousands of dollars on some lovely barristers that we all know and can brief, or do you want to just resolve this today? And that's very often the, the difficult but important job that we do. And just on that note, um, one of the biggest risks, and I know that we'll have a different episode on this, but when you're thinking about um, what is it that you're wanting to achieve when you're trying to resolve your property issues, think about it as being your ticket to freedom. It's your new normal. It's your new step. Don't think about it as a wish list. Um, if you go to court and even on your best day in court and the judge gives you everything you want and a bit more, the other side's probably going to get advice to appeal it and it's not always the best outcome. So if you can compromise, if you can show some common sense, that's where we really need you to be when you're thinking about dividing up your property. Yeah, well, look, that's really helpful. Thanks. I, I, I like that expression, the ticket to freedom. I might try and start selling those on the, on the corner outside the office. Um, if you've listened to this podcast, you've got any questions about property settlement, then feel free to put some comments down below or to send us an email, and we'll try and address those in a future episode. So thanks very much, Liza. That's Property Settlement thanks, in Family Law. Hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to tune in next time for the thrilling episode of Split Happens, or Stand Under. Thanks for listening to Split Happens, the Divorce Down Under podcast. If you want to hear more of our episodes, you'll find us wherever you find your podcasts on all good platforms.